of your great love and kindness upon us and how you have delighted in us, thereby making us <coughs> into the glorious Son. Father, I also pray for those amongst us who are here investigating Christianity. Father, as they search for truth, as they seek to find hope and purpose, I ask, O oh God, that you would speak to them and that though they may feel they have never known you, they would recognize your voice as one who is so familiar as a voice that is their home. Father, we ask that you would now encourage us as we sit under your word and that you would bless this message in spite of the one who brings it. For we ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen <coughs> and amen. You know, it's been once stated that if you're not growing in life, you're going nowhere in life. Again, if you're not growing in life, then you're going nowhere in life. And what that phrase is trying to convey is that if you don't want to get stuck, if you don't want to be just spinning your wheels, if you just don't want to be sitting there going nowhere in life, then you need to make sure that you are growing, growing in whatever category of life that you may be thinking of. For example, if you don't want to get stuck in your financial life due to having poor decisions or mounting debt to where you're stuck at home, you need to be growing so that like your peers, you could have new cars. You could be living in nice homes. Or if you want to grow in your relational life and not be stuck in a dead-end relationship where there's no ring in sight, meanwhile all your friends are already enjoying half a decade of marriage, then you too need to be growing in terms of your relational competence. If you don't want to get stuck in your career where you're doing the same dead-end job at the same level of income, meanwhile, that former intern of yours is now managing partner of a competing firm in the other part of the city, then you need to be growing in your work ethic. You need to be growing in your calling as a worker for God. There is nothing more debilitating, there is nothing more discouraging in life than to be stuck in in it to where you're just spinning your wheels seeming like you're going nowhere and one of the reasons why something so tragic tends to happen is because so many are not maturing they're not developing they are not growing that's so sad but you know what's even more sad what's more sad than that if you could believe it is when people who claim the name of christ as their lord turn out to not be growing in the most crucial area of life of all, and that is their spiritual life. If you ask such people, hey, how much have you grown in terms of your faith in God, your service to God, your love for God, based on how they live their life, their honest answer would be, you know, the past 10 years feel more like the past 10 minutes. Not much has changed during that time. And maybe, just maybe, if you're honest with yourself, that could be said of you. Well, fret not because we're still in the new year where many of us are still motivated to change for the better. And I wanted to use that as the opportunity to challenge you, to challenge myself, that we would all seek to grow up in our faith, to mature into spiritual maturity. And that's what today's sermon is all about as we continue our sermon series on the core values of NCF. I want to talk about what it takes for you to grow up in your faith, in your walk with Christ. But to do that, I want to make this message as simple as possible, but I don't want to make it simplistic. And the way I hope to do that is by utilizing a symbol that the Bible frequently employs to help us understand and better digest the complexities of spiritual growth, and that is a symbol of the growing tree. 
Yeah, the growing tree. One of the most interesting things you discover is that whenever the Bible tries to teach on this very nuanced, complicated, depth-defying thing known as spiritual maturity, it always helps us untangle it by helping us see the observations of a growing tree and extracting from that simple goals that if we apply it, we could truly grow up. It's there. It's in Scripture. For example, in Genesis 1.28, which records for us the very first words that God speaks to humanity, do you know what God tells Adam and Eve, our very first parents? He tells them, be fruitful and multiply. Isn't that interesting? Out of all the words that God could use as the opening lines to humanity, words that would be forever immortalized that King David ever wrote, he talks about the blessed man, a.k.a. the man who is growing spiritually. And what he's like? What is he like? He is like a tree planted by streams of living water. And then when you go to 1 Corinthians 3, where the Apostle Paul is talking about spiritual growth, he uses languages of planting and watering. Again, words that would be apt to a growing tree. Over and over, Scripture uses the insight of a growing tree to be applied to help us better understand of how to grow up in our That's what I want to do for you today. I want to teach you about how to grow up by basing it on the observations of growth that we see in a tree so that you could help yourself in growing up in the gospel. So with that in mind, three things that I want to share with you, three goals, three steps, three milestones that I want you to try and pursue by the power of God so that you can grow, okay? Step one, first, You need to get properly planted. If you want to truly grow up in your faith, you need to get properly planted. And then step two, you develop through others. And when you do that, you're ready to move on to the final stage, which is produce fruit in others. These are the three steps that we should follow, goals that we should seek to achieve if we want to truly mature in our faith. Get properly planted, develop through others, and produce fruit in others. Let's begin with the first point. Get properly planted. Now, this is really the most foundational step that you need to take, which is why we're going to linger on this first point for just a while. So let's talk about this idea of getting properly planted. Now, it goes without saying, but I'm going to say it anyway. Every tree that exists today at one point started out as a seed. Am I right? Of course. Every tree that you walk by in the city, every tree that you sit under in the park, every tree that you admire during the fall season, all at one point started off as a seed. But here's the thing. The converse is not true. Not every seed that you see out there will become a growing tree. Not every seed that exists will reach its created design of actually growing into a tree for a variety of reasons. They get eaten. They get washed away. They get crushed. Only a small minority actually lives out its creaturely design, which means if a tree seed could talk, if we could venture what it would say, I would imagine it would say something like this. Oh, I really, really want one thing in my seed life. I want to get properly planted. And here's what's astounding. The Bible teaches us that that is the same heartfelt cry of every human being that walks on this earth. Take a listen to what King David says in verse 1 of Psalm 1, where we read, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Here, David describes the man who gets blessed by what he does not do. He does not walk amongst the counsel of the wicked. He does not stand amongst sinners. He does not sit in the seat of scoffers. And notice he describes this movement dynamic where a person starts off walking, continues on into standing, and then eventually lands, gets planted into sitting. You know how sometimes we tell young people, plant yourself in that chair. You know, sit down. 
That's the same idea. And here's what's so interesting. This movement dynamic of walking, standing, and eventually sitting, that perfectly describes the movement of life that we all go through in trying to find a peaceful and prosperous life. We all start off walking around, exploring this world, hoping for something to stand on, hoping that by standing on it, we will eventually be able to sit, get planted on it that will cause us to flourish and have peace and prosperity. And that something could be anything under the sun. For some of us, that something could be our education, where we walk through our educated life, hoping to get into a certain kind of school to where we can stand on that illustrious degree, hoping that it will cause us to eventually sit and be planted in a place that's peaceful and prosperous. Or that something could be another person, usually a spouse, where we walk around exploring, hoping to find, quote-unquote, the one, hoping to eventually stand with them at the altar, looking at each other, saying, I do, that will eventually lead into being planted somewhere to your happily ever after, to your own peace and prosperity. For others of us, that something could be financial stability, where we walk throughout our career, going from promotion to promotion, raise to raise, hoping to stand on an impressive resume that will eventually lead us to getting planted, to getting seated into retirement, peace and prosperity. Whatever your something is or whatever combination of something is, we all seek to live out some place that will cause us to be planted, to be seated in an area of life where we can have peace and prosperity. But as we just read in verse 1, It is possible to be planted on something that is not proper at all. And as a result, instead of experiencing peace and prosperity, we experience disaster and destruction, which therefore begs the question, what is the thing that if we plant on it is proper? What is the thing that we must properly plant on if we want to have the kind of life that we instinctively are crying out for? Well, David tells us in verse 2 of Psalm 1. Take a listen to what he says there. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates on it day and night. Here David just cuts to the chase, and he tells us exactly what you and I need to plant on. What is it? Who is it? It's God. It's God. But, of course, he doesn't simply say God. He specifies something about God that we need to plant on, which is what? His law. The law of the Lord. We, if we want to have a life that is peaceful and prosperous, prosperous we must plant ourselves on god's law but of course why does david say that what's so special about the law of god well let me tell you a very long-winded explanation when most people think of the law they usually associate certain ideas of the law right The law associates certain ideas like having to be under the authority of someone else, of being under the control of someone else, of having to submit to someone else. Not the kinds of things that make us feel warm and fuzzy inside, and yet that's the whole point. You know, Christians are so notorious of emphasizing certain attributes of God while completely minimizing and ignoring other attributes of God. And one particular attribute that Christians today are so notorious in minimizing to the point of acting as if it doesn't exist is the attribute of God's authority. The lordship of God where we properly recognize God's right to completely rule over us, to completely dominate us, to be our king where we recognize him as our rightful master and we are his servants, right? And yet so many Christians, we don't like that idea. We don't like that feeling whatsoever. Why? Well, it's not too hard to figure out. The whole idea of of lordship and authority 
that doesn't fit right with us because for us, we think that if someone is controlling us, even if that someone is God, that means I can't control my own life. And if I can't control my own life, then I can't determine my own sense of happiness. And because we think this way, we don't have a very positive, we don't have a very attraction to the law of God. And yet look at how David in verse 2, how he describes his perception of God's law. What did he say? I delight in it. I delight in it to the point where I meditate on it day and night. Now don't get thrown off by that whole meditation statement You know, David is not going all Eastern on us. He's not trying to smuggle in some Zen Buddhism to his worship of Yahweh. No, he's using that word meditation to talk about this this joyful, giddy obsession over something because you recognize it as being so awesome. It's kind of like when a 16-year-old boy is about to get his license the next day, and he keeps going back to the garage looking at his dad's convertible observing it, looking at every detail of the car. He's meditating over the car because his dad promised he could drive it as the moment he get his license, right? That boy is meditating over the car. Or when that young lady keeps going to the store, looking at those pairs of shoes that she's just so eager to put on her feet, she's meditating on her shoes. She's giddy. She's excited. She's obsessively gazing upon it that is what david is saying he has towards the law and what he says you christian how your posture should be towards the law but of course that doesn't really make sense why would anyone in their right mind have this kind of feeling this kind of meditative obsession over something that reminds them that they're not in charge that they're not in control of their own life that someone else has authority over them and it's at this point where david utilizes the imagery of the tree to help us understand why this is such a big deal. Take a listen to what he says, starting in verse 3. He says, He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Now, there are two words that I want to draw your attention to, to the verses that I just read. The first word is the word wither in verse 3, and the other word is wind in verse 4. By using these two words, David is telling us the kind of world that you and I live in. Do you know the kind of world that you and I live in? We live in a world that, A, sucks the life out of us, kind of like that hot desert heat just sucks out all the life-giving moisture of a tree to where it ends up withering and decaying right before our eyes, right? And not only that, life is also like a windy storm that just beats us down, over and over and over to the point where we feel like we're going to rip apart and topple over like a tree does in a hurricane, right? And yet, look at what David says about a tree that gets properly planted. When a tree is properly planted, its roots go deep to where it can access that underground water that the hot desert sun has no access to in evaporating, right? And as a result, that tree can flourish in a most hostile environment. And not only that, when a tree gets properly planted, those roots are embedded deep into the foundations of the ground to where no matter how hard the wind blows, no matter how hard the winds try to knock it down, it is stable, it is secure. David says that is the person who is planted on God's law. Someone who seeks to submit their life completely under God's rule. When you are submitting yourself to the rule of God over your life, you are safe, you are secure, you are stable, and therefore you can thrive in a world that is as harsh as the one that you and I live in. Now I know some of you guys are hearing this and you're still not convinced. And the reason why you're not convinced is because it's been so ingrained into you and into me 
that the only way you can truly have happiness, peace, and prosperity is if you are truly free. That is, you have no constraints. You have no bindings upon you. You don't have to submit to anyone else. You are your own ruler. You are your own captain. You are your own Lord. Because we assume that only true happiness comes when there is true or complete freedom. No restraints. No restrictions. But consider this insightful quote from Pastor Tim Keller as he writes the following, quote, freedom cannot be defined in strictly negative terms as the absence of confinement and constraint. In fact, in many cases, confinement and constraint is actually a means to liberation. If you have musical aptitude, you may give yourself to practice, practice, practice the piano for years. This is a restriction, a limit on your freedom. There are many other things you won't be able to do with the time you invest in practicing. If you have the talent, however, the discipline and limitation will unleash your ability that would otherwise go untapped. What have you done? You've deliberately lost your freedom to engage in some things in order to release yourself to a richer kind of freedom to accomplish other things. Disciplines and constraints liberate us when they fit with the reality of our nature and capacities. A fish, because it absorbs oxygen from the water rather than air, is only free if it is restricted and limited to water. If we put it out on the grass, its freedom to move and even live is not enhanced, but destroyed. What is he saying? He's saying this whole notion of being completely free of restraints, right, and, and being confined as the source of true freedom is absolutely false. The Bible teaches us over and over. It is only a person who submits themselves under the lordship of God that they are truly free, that they truly live out their nature in such a way they can delight and have peace and prosperity. This is why the Bible says that whenever a person chooses to not live under the rule of God, to not live under God's law, they're not free at all. Just the opposite. They are a slave. This is why Jesus once said in John chapter 8, verse 34, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is what? Is a slave to sin. Do you see? So that's the first goal. If you want to get truly mature, truly developed, if you really want to grow up, you need to make sure that you have submitted your whole life under the authority and rulership of God to where you recognize him for who he really is. He is your king. He is your master. You are his servant. That's where it begins. And once you land there, you're then able to move on to the next stage of development, which leads me to my next point, develop through others. Let's look at the other passage for today, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We're starting in verse 5. We read, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. So here Paul tells us that once we get established and getting properly planted on the law of God, where we submit it to God's lordship over us, we then have to move on to this next stage, which I call developing through others. Just a little bit of background here to help you understand. Paul was writing to a church in the city that he planted called Corinth, and there was a lot of infighting going on in this church. Apparently there was a group of people arguing with another group of people about who had the better teacher. You see, there were some Christians in this church who were discipled by Paul, others who were discipled by another apostle by the name of Apollos. And these two groups were fighting each other, arguing about who had the better teacher because whoever had the better teacher, that was the group that should dominate, should rule, should influence the church in terms of where it should go. And Paul heard about this infighting, and he wrote this letter, and he specifically addressed this issue 
in verse 5 and 6. Read it again. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. What's Paul saying? Well, in a nutshell, he's saying, knock it off, guys. Cut it out. Listen, no one group is better than the other, and no other group is superior to the other. Because I am not better than Apollos, and Apollos is not superior to me. See, Paul is trying to get it into the heads of the Corinthian Christians and to us today that spiritual growth does not happen through exclusive one-on-one access to someone who's considered a spiritual guru, okay? How does Paul say growth happens? It happens through God. God causes the growth. But how exactly does God do it? Well, Paul tells us, through various appointments of various people in the context of the church. The church. You know how they say that it takes a village to raise a child? Well, Paul would say it takes a whole church made up of various people who have been variously appointed by God to help raise and develop a Christian. Okay? Growth happens in the context of community. And I think we need to really need to, I think we really need to heed this now more than ever. Because so many Christians today kind of have this Lone Ranger mentality that they don't need anyone except their own personal tanto, right? Whether that tanto is named Keller, MacArthur, Moeller, you know, Chandler, whoever, you know, your personal tanto is that you can ride off into the spiritual wilderness and you'll be fine all on your own with your spiritual guru buddy. Paul says no. Don't be ridiculous. True growth happens in the context of community in the context of relationships, specifically in the context of Christian friendships. Christian friendships. Not Christian friend, Christian friendships. Take a listen to how one theologian by the name of Paul Tripp, what he says here, quote, have you ever wondered why some Christians grow and some don't? Have you ever been discouraged and confused in your own relationship with God? If someone asked you what the key to personal growth and change was, what would you say it is? Could it be that you're a Christian, but you're missing an essential piece of the life God called you to? When most Christians think about growing in their faith, they sometimes leave out one of the most important means that God has provided, our friendships. God unites us to Christ, but also places us within a community of faith where we influence one another in profound ways, end quote. If you really want to grow up in the faith, if you really want to mature and develop, spiritually speaking, you need Christian friends. Christian friends. And notice, I didn't say church friends, but Christian friends. Christian friends and church friends, they're not the same thing, guys. They are absolutely not. And you're wondering, well, what's the difference? A church friend is someone who you happen to get along with, someone who you like, someone you have common interests with, and on top of that, you happen to go to the same church. That's a church friend. A Christian friend, however, is not only someone who likes you, someone who gels with you, but it's someone who actually cares about your relationship with God Maybe even more their relationship with you. This is a friend who really wants to see you grow. This is someone who wants to see you develop. This is someone who's going to pray for you, pray with you, study scripture with you, share their intimate life with you, and want you to share your struggles with them. This is the friend who's going to call you out when you're not living in accordance to the way you should be as scripture teaches. That is a Christian friend, and that's the kind of friendships that you need that will cause you to grow. Now, if you're not sure whether or not the people you associate with at church is a Christian friend or a church friend, consider the following diagnostic questions as you think about a particular group of people. 
Is it awkward to talk about God with this person? Is it weird to pray with this person? Is it uncomfortable to open a Bible with this person and just share what God has taught you in your personal devotions? Is it scary to share your struggles, your fears, your failures, your sins? If your answer is yes across the board to the group of people or individuals that you're thinking of right now, I'm sorry to say, that is not a Christian friend. That is a church friend, okay? And those friends aren't gonna help you grow in your faith. If you really want to grow, if you really want to get established, you need Christian friendships. Because that's the only kind of friendships that will cause you to actually grow. Doesn't matter if this person that you like enjoys UFC fighting like you. It doesn't matter if this person goes fishing with you. It doesn't matter if you enjoy doing play dates with your kids and their kids. If that's only the extent of your relationship with somebody at this church, they're not helping you grow. The only friendships that will cause you to grow is Christian friendships. Do you see that? If you do, then you're ready to move on to the third and final stage of spiritual growth, which leads me to the last point, producing fruit in others. Let's read again 1 Corinthians 3, but this time starting in verse 6. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. Okay, so Paul uses this imagery of gardening, horticulture, right, to illustrate this idea of this last stage of spiritual growth. And interestingly, he inserts himself and Apollos as examples to follow so that we can live out this last stage. And I call this last stage of producing fruit in others. Now, Here's the question. What exactly does it mean to produce fruit in others? What example is Paul telling us that we should follow with regard to him and Apollos? Well, think about it. What did Paul and Apollos do? They poured into, they invested in, they shared their life with the people around them, i.e., their Christian friends, to such an extent that these friends started producing spiritual fruit. They started growing, right? They started growing in such a way to where they were also being developed. Not only does spiritual growth require you to be developed, but it also requires you to develop other people, to produce spiritual fruitfulness. That's the example that Paul is demanding the Corinthian Christians and all Christians everywhere to follow with regard to his life. Now, you might be wondering, why is this such a big deal? Why is it so important that we do this? Why is producing fruit, why is following the example of Paul so important? Listen to what he says in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians. In verse 1, what does he say? Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. And there it is. The reason why producing fruit is so important to God is because when you produce fruit, you become like Paul, but more importantly, you become like the one who Paul's trying to be like. You become like Jesus. That is the ultimate point. That is the ultimate goal of growing up in your faith so that you will be like Jesus Christ. I said this before, and I'm going to say it again. Jesus didn't die on the cross as your Savior substitute just so that you could go to heaven after you die. No, Jesus also died on the cross as your Savior substitute so that you would be like Jesus on earth before you die. That was a mouthful, but I got to say it again. Jesus didn't just die on the cross as your Savior substitute so that you could go to heaven after you die. He also died on the cross 
as your Savior substitute so that you would be like him on earth before you die. That's what the gospel is trying to teach us. That is the ultimate blessing of the gospel. Yes, the gospel is good news because I get forgiven of my sins. Yes, the gospel is wonderful because I get eternal life. But the gospel is even more wonderful because I get to be like Jesus. Some of you may recognize this. Some of you may deny it. All of us in here, we're all trying to imitate somebody. We all try to follow the pattern of somebody else. We all model our lives around someone. Parents, hello, don't you remember that when you were a little kid, you used to say something like, man, when I have kids of my own, I'm not going to be like my mom or my dad. And then you have your kid and you realize you're just like your mom and your dad. Why is that? Because that's how you're created. That's how you're wired. You are wired to imitate someone. You are wired to model yourself after someone. You're created to follow after the example of someone. This is why advertising companies make billions of dollars, because they exploit the way that we are created. They take the way we're created and direct it towards that, that actor who's promoting their products or, or, or that celebrity promoting their thing that you want to be like, whether it be Michael Jordan or some other famous celebrity. But Paul tells us there's only one person and one person alone who is worthy of imitation, only one person that you were created to follow the example of, and that's Jesus Christ. Now, if you're here today in person or watching Investigating Christianity, you might be wondering, well, what's so special about Jesus? Why can't I be more like Mike instead of being more like Jesus? Why can't I be more like Taylor Swift? I don't know if any Taylor Swift uh, fans are in here, right? Then Jesus. What's so special about Jesus? Well, Paul would say, and the whole Bible would say, there is no one who can bless the world with the blessing that Jesus gives that the world desperately needs the most. Let me explain. There are some Christians out there, very misguided Christians, who believe that Jesus went through all that he did, living a humble and obscure life, suffering a grueling death, and then rising again from the dead so that it would result in him having a more deeper, more meaningful, more richer relationship with God, the Father. As if to say that after he was resurrected, he was elevated to a higher level of intimacy and enjoyment of God, the Father, that he didn't have before. Wrong. Wrong. Jesus, before he was Jesus, when he was the eternal Son of God, he had the perfect relationship with the Father. He had a relationship with God that could not have gotten deeper, more better, more superior than what it was after the resurrection, which means what? It means Jesus went through everything that he did, his humiliating and grueling death and his victorious resurrection so that this perfect relationship that he had with the Father could become your relationship to the Father. So that his superior, unique, one-of-a-kind relationship to God could be something that you could share with him as co-heirs, as Paul writes. Do you see? This is how you know, by the way, that you're spiritually maturing. Okay? A spiritual mature person will always desire to share the level of intimacy that they have with God with other people around them. Let me tell you now, if there's someone out there today who thinks that, hey, I know I'm spiritually mature because I have this kind of unique, one-of-a-kind, superior relationship with God that no other Christian could ever match, ever catch up to because I'm so set apart, I'm so elite, and therefore I'm so intimidating. You ever been around people like that who think they're so mature? 
because they have such a, a unique, deep fellowship with God that you could never hope to match. That person is not spiritually mature because that person is not like Christ. Because that was not Christ's ambition. That was not his mission. That was not his mandate. His mandate was to make sure that his relationship with the Father, the depth, the intimacy would be your depth, your intimacy with the Father. That's why he came and that's why he is the Lord that he is. I love this quote from Pastor Joseph Stoll. Listen to what he says here. Jesus Christ is and was passionately addicted to people. Having come from eternity past and given that he was on his way to eternity future, Christ was well aware that the only entity of true value and worth on this earth is people. They are the only eternal commodities. Everything else will be held at the border. So it is no wonder that Jesus was consumed with people, their relationship to him, and their eternal destiny. And if that is where he is headed, then that is where Followers will be found as well. Authentic followers focus the attention of their lives and resources on the spiritual potential and eternal destiny of mankind. Is there a greater cause? Is there a greater cause? One of the ways that you know you're spiritually mature is not when you feel like you can be an intimidating person because you have such a deep relationship with God that no one else can match. No, you know you're spiritually mature when people around you are also going to be mature because you are in their life, because you are acting like Jesus. And you are acting like Jesus by giving to people around you the greatest blessing of all. What was the greatest blessing Jesus gave us? He gave us his Father. He gave us God. Right? And that is what we should be giving to the people around us as we become more like Jesus. This is why we say at our church, the more you grow up in the gospel, the more you'll be a blessing to the world because you will be giving the world what they need the most by becoming more like your Savior. You'll be giving to the world what Jesus gave to the world. You'll be giving the Father's love, the Father's heart, the status of sonship, daughtership to a world that so seeks him out, even if they don't know it. Don't you see? Don't you get it? This is why we do all that we do for the purpose of being a blessing to the world. Hey, why did you marry that person that you married? It should be, not so that I could be happy, it's so that I can make my spouse more like Jesus. Why did you have as many kids as you did? Or why do you have kids at all? It's so that I can raise them to be more like Jesus. Not to get into Harvard, not to make a seven-figure salary, but to be more like Jesus. Hey, why did you get into that job with your unique skills and experiences? It's so that I could be amongst a certain group of people and I can share with them the Father by being more like Jesus. Don't you see? Everything we do is so that we can be more like Jesus, spreading the love of the Father to the whole world in the person of Jesus Christ. This is the challenge that I strive to live by, and that is the challenge I am asking you to take up this year and every year here on out. I hope and pray for the sake of this world, you will take it up. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would help us to see the importance of what it means to be growing in our faith so that we can going towards true life and making sure that the people around us are also coming with us. Father, you have called us to grow up in the gospel so that we can go out with the gospel. 
And I hope and pray, Lord, that that would be true of every member of this body and every church in this city and every community of faith across this globe. Father, I ask that we would be a people who seek to be like Jesus so that instead of giving off a false sense of spiritual maturity, we would live out true maturity by seeking to be a blessing. Help us to truly be properly planted in your law. Help us to truly develop through others in community and help us by your spirit to produce fruit in others, making us more like our beloved Savior. We ask in his holy name, amen and amen. I invite you now to please stand and respond to today's word by singing praises to our God. Let's respond with this song. Let's sing this.